Well, let's stand and read uh, John 12, beginning at verse 35, and we'll go to verse 50. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed the report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts, so they will not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has the one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. God, we are thankful for your scripture today. We have a lot to go through, 15 verses, and every single verse is jam-packed with something, Lord. So I just pray that you help me sift through the important things, and, um, well, not that nothing here is not important, but just in terms of sticking to a theme and working through uh, one main major issue, God, I just pray that you give us clarity to, to work through this. I um, thank you for your spirit, thank you how you guide us into truth, and how you um, have something to say to each one of us here today. So I just pray for a time of encouragement and uh, strength so that we can go out into the week honor, honoring you with our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off today a little differently. Uh, instead of giving a long intro, I just want to have you guys weigh in uh, right off the cuff. When you read 39 and 40, when you read 39 and 40, tell me if anything alerts you or makes you kind of wonder about the character of God when you read this. It says, For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with it eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Anything in those verses that kind of make you ask questions? Why wouldn't God want everyone to have a soft heart? Okay. Good question. Anything else? Go ahead, Sally. What verses are we on? Uh, verse 39 and 40. Oh. John chapter 12. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> How about the character of God? 
Anyone kind of get nervous with the character of God? God is love. God is love, isn't he? Does this does that anything strike you in here as being maybe potentially unloving? Yeah, for this reason, they could not believe. So imagine, watch this, uh, you know, Keith or Sheldon. The reason why you can't believe is because God, God made you that way. So you're walking through life, and you cannot believe because God made you that way. Right? That's what it seems like in the context it's saying. Anyway, we're going to have to deal with these kind of questions when we go through this. I want to read you Joe Donjel's thoughts. He's a professor from Asbury Seminary. I was fortunate enough to meet him. Um, in Kentucky when I went there with Dan about seven years ago and uh, sat through one of the classes as a, as a guest and I'd love to sit under his teaching he, he's, a, he's a great guy but um, he says this in his commentary on John on this verse standing alone this quotation could mean that God arbitrarily and unilaterally hardened hearts so as to prevent even the possibility of belief Indeed, many Christians throughout the ages have concluded this very thing and have extended such an understanding and its implications throughout the whole system of Christian faith. If you haven't been exposed to that yet in your life, you will be. <laughs> You'll meet Christians who believe this is God, God is arbitrarily and unilaterally hardening hearts to pre pre prevent belief. So for many of you today, this is the first time you've ever heard this about God and about this idea and theology. For others, this is not your first rodeo and you've been on this bull before. Um, but it's an important question to wrestle through because we can't ignore the fact that the Old Testament did prophesy that it was part of God's plan for Jesus to go to the cross. And he did prophesy that people would have hardened hearts and that the Jews would ultimately reject Jesus. So these are, this is important to deal with. So the two questions I want to address this morning are one, as Donjil says, does God arbitrarily and single-handedly harden hearts so as to prevent the possi possibility of belief so those plans are carried out? Secondly, if so, is it reversible? Can someone bounce back? If God comes in and supernaturally says, you're not going to believe from this day forward, can someone turn back to God in that state? Or is it something that once he acts, your destiny is, fate, your fate is determined? These are the two questions I want to answer. And my goal today is to give you solid biblical answers to these questions. Not my opinions, not what I wanted to say. I want to give you the text in their, in their original context. And I want to walk through this because this is a fundamental thing we need to believe in our church. And understand in our church. So we're going to have to look at the context of John and the context of Isaiah, because that's where these quotes come from, if we're going to get a good handle on this. So I don't know about you, but I'm kind of excited to tackle this, because it's one of the major, uh, major things you have to deal with as a Christian when it comes to theology. So much so that different camps in the church have been set up in opposition to one another over these issues. So let's jump in. The first thing I want you to notice is Jesus is now at the end of his ministry, and he makes one more appeal to the crowds um, for, him, for them to believe in here. You look at this in 35. He says, he's just told the, the people that he's the Messiah, 
And they ask him, are you going to remain forever? Or I thought the Christ was going to remain forever because he's just predicted his death. And so now Jesus, knowing that these guys aren't believing, say this to him in 35. For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. In verse 44 and 40 through 46, he actually says here, not only does he make an appeal to the crowds to believe, but he actually cries out for them to believe. Look at 44. He cries out and says, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me, um, he who sees me, the one who sent me. And so basically, he's basically crying out to the, uh, making appeal to the crowds to acknowledge him as the Messiah. Again, this is important to understand in the context. If God is hardening these people's hearts arbitrarily and unilaterally, why in the world would Jesus in the previous verses cry out to them to say, please believe in me? It seems illogical to ask somebody to believe in him if he's the very one who's predetermined that they, won't be, they can't believe in the first place. So again, you see the, see the logicalness of that? I'm going to predetermine you to not believe, but I'm going to cry out to you beforehand and ask you to believe. Clearly from Jesus' point of view, the context from, this, from here, the context shows you that um, Jesus is expecting them to respond to him and wants them to respond to him. But the second thing you want to notice in the context is John's amazement at their unbelief considering all they had witnessed. In verse 37 it says, Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. John makes it clear here that the lack of belief had nothing to do with Jesus withholding any evidence from them. He says they, he performed many signs before them. They are not secondhand witnesses here. These people have seen these signs. So it doesn't tell you which ones, but perhaps they saw the miracle at the pool of Bethesda when the lame man after 40 years was, was given full health. Maybe they saw the blind man uh, outside the temple when he was healed, be restored, who was blind from birth, get his vision back. Maybe they saw Lazarus walking around, or were perhaps there at the funeral that day when he was raised from the dead. And who else but God could do these kind of miracles? So the issue for these guys is they had, it's not that they hadn't seen the miracles that were perform, performed before them. The issue was their preconceived notions of who Jesus was as their Messiah. Again, they expected a conquering king whose message is one of conquest and liberation for the nation. And instead, all they get is this passive guy who keeps talking about dying. So, I mean, their reason they, they wouldn't... Um, their the expectations that Jesus wasn't being met by them, and so they just hardened their hearts towards him because he wasn't going to be the guy that they signed up to follow. But again, regardless of why they didn't believe, I don't want you to miss John's expectation here that they should have believed, believed right? But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. Again, they should have been believing, but they were not believing. So again, John's amazed at their lack of belief. So it's at this juncture point, it's important to note that John puts the onus on the people for the rejection of Jesus at this point. Jesus says, you believe in me. It's your responsibility. God sa and John says, but they weren't believing despite the signs. Your responsibility. Everything up to this point, the onus has been put on the people for the, la for the rejection of Jesus Christ. Despite his attempts to win them over and all the signs that they saw. 
Now what's interesting is John tells us here that instead of Israel's unbelief catching God off guard, like it was a big surprise to him, this unbelief is actually fulfilling a prophecy made about 700 years earlier by Isaiah. And we pick this up in 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, whom has believed the report, and to whom has the Lord, arm of the Lord been revealed? This prophecy came from Isaiah 53, verse 1, and so we need to turn there right now. Now, it's important to understand this question based on what occurred before it. After he said, when he says, who has believed our message and to whom the, has the arm of the Lord been revealed, it's a question that comes after what he de- the, how he defines Jesus Christ when he comes. The prophecy in chapter 52, starting at verse 13, gives us a running start to what precedes the question. Look at 52, 13. This is a prophecy by Isaiah. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations, kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what has been told to them they will see, and what they have not heard they will not they will understand. Now what's interesting about this passage is the prophecy is about Jesus, the Messiah to come. And there's two things in here you don't want to miss. Number one, that he's going to be a suffering Messiah. Right? His appearance is marred more than any other man. Then it says he will sprinkle many nations. It's a, it's a prophecy about the coming suffering of Jesus. But then it says, in that suffering, he will be exalted and God will be in favor of this guy. Verse 13, my servant will prosper and he will be exalted and lifted up and greatly exalted. Again, there's this God exalting him at the same time he's a suffering Messiah. This is totally contrary to what the Israelites expected in Jesus' day. That's why they rejected him. We're not following a suffering Messiah. All you talk about is dying. We want this conquering military king. And you've made no move to take, take a free Israel, and we don't want you anymore. Now what's interesting is now that's when Isaiah said, who has believed their message? <laughs> well, nobody in Israel in the past would have believed that message, and nobody in Jesus' day was going to believe that message. And Isaiah prophesied that when Jesus came as a suffering servant, that was going to be exalted in that suffering by going to the cross, God knew that these guys were going to declare him, like they reject him. So when John now sees that these guys are rejecting him and not believing in his signs, it, this is why he now says, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, who has believed the report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Okay? I hope that uh, was clear and makes sense based on the context. So again, Fast forward 700 years from the prophecy, Israel fulfilled the prophecy not only by rejecting Jesus' message, but failing to see the signs pointed to him being the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is the arm of the Lord that's sent by God, and they're rejecting the powerful miracles that he's doing in their presence. And again, this is no surprise to God. Their blatant rejection of Jesus after calling to, be- to believe in him was 700 years old. And I like what Ben Witherington says, another professor at Asbury Seminary. He says, just like Jesus' death was part of God's plan and a fulfillment of Scripture, so too was the rejection of Jesus by many of his fellow Jews. Now here's where it gets interesting. Not only does John tell us in verse 37 and 38 that the Jews would not believe, 
Now in 39 through 41, he tells us that they could not believe. Let's read it together. For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and be converted, and I heal them. Now this quote comes from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And before we turn there, I actually want you to look at another place in the New Testament where this exact quote is used. And we're going to learn something very, very interesting because we have the New Testament writer John quoting it in one fashion, and we're going to have the exact same quote from Isaiah quoted by Matthew in another context. Look at this. This is what Matthew says about this exact verse. He quotes Isaiah and says this, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull with their ears. They scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. You notice the difference there? In John, the onus is put on God for their lack of belief. In Isaiah 6, quoting Isaiah 6. Matthew, Matthew says, I put, the onus is on them for not believing and hardening their hearts towards God. Quoting the exact same scripture. So, in one, the Matthew says it's the people's fault, and in John it sounds like God's at fault for their unbelief. Now, if this is true, how do we answer this? Well, to be honest with you, I don't fully know. Uh, that's not a great response from a pastor, I know, but I'll give you a strong suggestion. I think both are true. Both are true. It's the people's fault for their initial unbelief, and because of their initial unbelief and contempt towards God, then God gets involved to further cement them in their unbelief. Right? So you can use the same passage because it's the people's fault for their belief, and then God watching them practicing this attitude towards them says, okay, you want to go this way? I'll put a period at the end of your sentence. I'll finish this off for you. Now, if this is true... We should be able to see this in other scriptures, right? It has to be, can't be a one-off. This needs to be a pattern of God through the Old and New Testament. And that's exactly what we find. And we better find it in Isaiah 6, because that's where it's used. So I want to show you Isaiah 6, how this is true in that context, and just give you a couple other passages to think about in terms of how this is actually still fulfilled throughout the rest of scripture. Turn with me to Isaiah Chapter 1. Since you're in 6, it shouldn't be hard to find 1. <laughs> Go back a tiny bit. And what we're going to discover here is we're going to look for the people's initial attitudes towards God. Their initial heart towards God. Now, I'm going to blast through this, so follow me closely. And if you miss this whole thing, I, will, I can talk to you at lunch and give you the verses. I'm going to summarize five chapters in about one, two minutes. Okay? Look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 2. The description of Israel. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. For the Lord speaks, sons I have reared and brought you up, but they have revolted against me. Verse 4. Verse 4. 
Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offers offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. The onus is on the people. Look at verse uh, 21, chapter 1. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. The onus is on them. 2.6 For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. How did they do that? Look at verse 8. They go into full idolatry. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So the common man has become humble, and so on. For two, uh, chapter 3, uh, he accuses the men and women of being arrogant, boastful, and prideful towards him. Look at 3.8, description of the men. For the Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. Look at 3.16. Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with their heads held high in seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion and so on and so forth. Again, pride and arrogance amongst the men and women. Chapter 4, verse 4. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem. Again, it's on them. And then he ends with a description of the people in chapter 5, starting at verse 1, the parable of the vineyard. Let me sing now from my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O heavens of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and the vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? I couldn't do any more for you guys. What else could I have done? And why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it not produce, it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it'll be consumed and so forth. This is a description of people who are doing really, really poorly. They have complete contempt for God and have rejected Him and the onus is on them. And God says, I expected you to do otherwise, but you patternistically rebel against me. Now it's important to look at that when Isaiah 6 comes in. Because in 9 and 10, he then says this to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their ears dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Listen, God only hardens people and gets involved in response to when they've already hardened their hearts towards Him first. This is no arbitrary hardening. It's like you know, when you eat popcorn, you're like, you have your, you're watching a movie and you have a bag and you get popcorn and you just eat it. You're not looking. God's not pulling out popcorn like hardened hearts, not hardened hearts. You know, He's not doing that. He's responding to people who already hate him and say, I, I don't want anything to do with you, God, or anything part of you. I don't want you to be part of my life in any way. 
God gets involved and says, I'm going to just give, put the period on the end of the sentence. I'm going to give you what you want. Now, other scripture that you think would confirm this, don't we have that in Pharaoh? Ten times, Pharaoh hardens his heart towards God. Ten times, it's said that God, hard, uh, um, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So there's 20 occurrences of the hardened, hardness of heart, ten on both of them. But what's interesting, I don't have, I see there's six or seven, I, I didn't have time to count. On the, Pharaoh hardens his heart towards God six or seven times first, and then on the, the next, that's when God says he hardened his heart. So let my people go, let my people go. No, 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 no. Six or seven times and God says, fine, I'll give you what you want. I'm getting involved now. Crazy. Crazy. People who believe that God preordained Pharaoh to be hard and then he, and all these types of things. Listen, he's responding to Pharaoh. This is no arbitrary choosing. You know, Jeff always gives a plug for doing a chronological Bible reading. Um, this is really cool. It's perfect timing. I was reading this in my chronological reading of a couple, two weeks ago, and I found this passage, and it just came to me, and then I, and it was perfect for today. Look at Psalm 81. This is David. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So... I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. <clears throat> Pharaoh, you know what? He's treating Israel the same way as Pharaoh. You want to rebel against me? Go ahead. I'll give you what you want and I'll harden you at this point. This, this thought of arbitrary hardly for his glory and for his good pleasure, it does not exist in the scriptures. God only gets involved when people say, I don't want you over and over and over again. So now the second question needs to be addressed then. When God hardens somebody's heart, is it permanent? At that point, can they come back and turn to the Lord? You know, I've, I've said this from the pulpit a few times in my life. Um, what has God had to change in your own theology in the last year? Are you teachable? Things like that. Up to this point in my theology, I don't know if I really thought it through much, but I would have guessed, and my theology was more like this, yes, once God gets involved and says, you're done, you're done. You ain't coming back from that. I was wrong. I was wrong. And the context is going to show us that we're wrong. And this is, this is really massive for the people who hold the theology that once God hardens your heart, you're, you're toast. You actually can come back from that. You can come back. I was listening to two pastors this week. Because I use other, I, list, I read commentaries, I, I listen to other people because I want, I like take the wisdom of many from, for, for my own teaching. Two men that I highly respect and would sit under their teaching, they both said, um, this is a permanent thing. They're done. They're done for. I can tell you that the context of Isaiah and the context of the rest of Scripture, the answer to that is no, it's not. Read Isaiah 6 with me, verse 11. God has just told Isaiah to tell the people that he's done, with, he's done in so much that he's, he's going to harden them at this point and they're not going to hear and perceive anymore. So, Isaiah says, How long, Lord? Verse 11. How long? You would expect to hear forever. He gives a timeline. Until the cities are devastated and without habitation, houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and forsaken places and so on and so forth. 
you know, this wasn't permanent. It was for a specific time period. And Joe D'Angelo in his commentary says this again to this verse. This hardening then served as God's response to the headstrong resistance of his people, but it should not be supposed that the hardening forever settled the matter. I read that again. This hardening then served as God's response to the headstrong resistance of the people, but it should not be supposed that the hardening forever settled the matter. Isaiah was commissioned to preach to a hardened audience until the appropriate punishment had been administered. Well, we should expect to see the same thing in John's context, shouldn't we? If that's true. And this is massive church. This is, uh, <coughs> this to me, you know, I used to get excited when I could bench press 400 pounds. And uh, this does the same thing for me as that used to back then, okay? Stick your finger in Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read John 12, 37. And we're going to bounce it back and forth with Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Okay, I'm going to read. Now listen very carefully to Acts, uh, or, or John 12, 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them... Yet they were not believing in him. These people saw the signs firsthand. And then God says, you can't believe because your hearts are so hard and I'm involved in hardening your hearts. That's the crowd. God's already supernaturally got involved with this group of people. Look at 22, Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles Wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. You saw them. This is the same people in John 12 as Acts chapter 2.22. Just as you yourselves know this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. So at this point, at this point you expect this. God supernaturally hardened them. They're still hard up to this point. There's no way these guys can change. They can't bounce back from that. There's not a single possibility. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Wait a minute. I thought your heart was supernaturally hardened by God up to the point you'll never ever bounce back and ever receive them or believe them. Wait a minute. That's different. They heard this. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. That's interesting. Each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Go to 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added 3,000 souls. Again, they listened to Peter's sermon. 3,000 people who in John 12 had seen the signs, rejected Jesus, had their hearts by, hardened by God in unbelief, now responding in faith to Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, that tell you, like, that's a, theolo theolo if you, a theological twister if you have a certain frame of mind towards how God acts. But here's what's cool about Joe D'Angelo again. He says it well. In all told, God hardens in response to rebellion against him in order to ultimately lead to redemption. The purpose of hardening someone's heart is not to say, ha I'm done with you. Get out of my life. 
No, he does it to lead to redemption. There's saving purposes behind what he's doing. I'll just quote Job. In all told, God hardens in response to rebellion against him in order to ultimately lead to redemption. Interesting in verse 41 then, that John states that Isaiah had said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. You see that in verse 41. Again, the event John is speaking about is in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision. And in the vision, Jesus is never mentioned. His name is ne never comes up. But it says that he saw the Lord and talks about him being a king. John tells us that actually Isaiah in that moment saw Jesus. He saw Jesus in his glory. Now when Jesus talks about himself in terms of being glorified, what's it always in reference to? Crucifixion. Right? When Jesus always speaks of being glorified, it's always in the category of crucifixion. Uh, John 12, 16. These things the disciples didn't understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things. In other words, all these prophecies happening about him after he was crucified, they got it. Again, so when, when Isaiah speaks, he gives these prophecies, and then he said these things because he ultimately probably saw that the, 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 Jesus was going to go to the cross. That he was a suffering Messiah, but through that, God would exalt him. It's pretty cool, because in Isaiah 6, I don't think you'd ever come to that conclusion until you read John chapter 12, verse 41. So I suggest that Isaiah got a glimpse into the cross, and that's one of the reasons why he himself melted in the presence of God. He says, woe is me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people with unclean lips. When, he was, when the presence of God came upon him, and he got a glory into the cross and what it meant, he was broken in his sin at that moment. It just gives a whole new picture to that passage. Again, Joint's point in bringing up Isaiah is that just as Jesus' death was part of God's plan, so was the rejection of Jesus by his own people. But John's quick to point out that even though the majority of people were hardened towards Jesus, not all of them were. Look at 42. Nevertheless, many of these rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. I really struggled with these verses this week. This was uh, probably why I felt like the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. Um, in my theology, uh, the way I understand things, if you're a person that has fear of man to the point that you won't uh, confess Jesus as Lord, you're not a genuine believer. Okay? And so I'm reading this going, many, nevertheless, many of these rulers believed in him, but, for fear of the Pharisees, they weren't confessing him. So I had this theological dilemma on my hands about how I was going to preach this to you. And what I'm going to say to you now, uh, you know, if you push back at me in the sermon, I'm okay with that. Because um, I, you know, this is what, what's been a tough thought for me. But I would say this, is that it's not a coincidence that the word, that verse 42 starts with, nevertheless, many believed. After the fact, after he said, God has blinded their eyes so they could not believe. He's saying this, God has hardened these guys' hearts so they could not believe. Nevertheless, even though God did that, some still believed. Right? So we can't ignore the fact that that's there. I don't want it to be there. It doesn't fit my theology, but I can't ignore the fact that that's there. And what God is saying, again, is, yeah, just because God, I think it's illustrating my points before, just because um, God hardens it doesn't mean it's permanent. It doesn't mean you still can't respond to him uh, um, 
later on, like we saw in Acts chapter 2. And we saw the threat for these guys being very real of why they wouldn't, why they didn't want to believe in the first place is that, you know, they were going to get kicked out of the synagogue. This goes back to John 9. It's a blind man when his parents were threatened to be kicked out of the synagogue if they confessed Jesus. He was threatened, and then he confessed Jesus as Lord, was kicked out, and his parents weren't. So the threat was very real to be excommunicated. I think we could totally relate to that. If you had to lose your family and your church community because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, that would make you reconsider whether you're going to confess them publicly or not. I mean, think about how close you are to some of your family. Imagine it was a light, it was a it was a matter of rejection by accepting Jesus. You might be able to relate to the pressures that these rulers were facing. So, what does Jesus do with this kind of faith? What do, do, what do you do with people that won't confess them? What do you do with that? Well, I'll give you two different answers. If it's temporary, I think there's grace by God. And I'll give you an example. Peter. Peter. He had a really bad night. Remember? Three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Get out of here. I will have nothing to do with this Jesus. I won't confess him. He had a really, really bad night. I'm sure you, as well as me, I can think of some really bad nights we've had when it came to standing up for Jesus Christ for the, because of the fear of men. <clears throat> fear of your parents, your grandparents, uh, your co-workers, whatever. I think there's grace in that if you learn from Peter. The difference, though, was Peter turned around like 50 days later and was on fire for the Lord and was preaching. You saw the message in Acts chapter 2. The very man he was fearful of, he's standing before and now speaking truth to him. He, under, he, got, he, had, he, he felt the forgiveness of God in, in that. So I think if you have a bad day or two, a temporary, God will respond in grace. And I don't know if these guys are permanent here in, or temporary in their, like, where they stand in terms of timeline of confessing or rejecting. I don't know that. But if they're in Peter's, spate, Peter's spot, then they could be, have legitimate faith. However, if they were habitual, habitual, Jesus has a warning for habitual denial of him or confessing of him before men. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If these men, or if our practice in our life is to habitually run away from confessing Jesus Christ, we have to be severely warned. We have to be severely warned. And only you know where you stand with God. Are you more like Peter? Or you're, or you're more in the habitual state. I have to ask myself the exact same question. It's easy to stand before you and tell you all about this because you're a safe audience. What do I do though when I'm away from you guys and don't have the protection of the church and like-minded people? It's a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different ballgame. And I'm not... Jesus knows, Jesus knows that that's a different ballgame when you don't have the community of believers around you and so do I. One day I'm going to do a sermon on the fear of men and how to gain victory in that area. Um, but it's such a huge topic. Um, I need more time to work that through. Well, it's a serious um, thing we have to work through in our church as, as believers. Okay, we'll finish with uh, the last few verses. So Jesus has just, you know, John has just told us that one of the key, key components of following Christ is to be one willing to confess him. But Jesus tells us in verse 44 to the end that there's much more to the Christian faith than that. He also tells us that we need to obey his commands and listen to and obey his teachings and sayings. 
Look at, um, starting at verse 47. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own, own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that this commandment is eternal life. This commandment, obeying his commandments is an issue of eternal life. Therefore the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Here's the thing, we can't say this, we can't say that uh, we are followers of Jesus and then not listen to his teachings and not obey his commands. I mean, we did a sermon just a couple weeks ago on how we live as Christians matters to God. Remember? He who denies himself daily and picks up his cross and follows him is, is worthy of, of being a disciple. Not pick up your cross and follow your grandpa, not your grandma, not your mom, your dad, your feelings, Buddha, Allah. No, if you want to know the genuine, who genuinely God is, you follow the commandments of Jesus. Now, if that's true, we better know the commandments of Jesus. <laughs> Matthew 5 is a good place to start, because that's the Sermon on the Mount, where he starts to reteach what he, uh, or teach what he believes, how to operate in life. And I also appreciate this. I haven't listened to any of them because of time, uh, but I would like to. Dan did a sermon series, just he's finishing next week, The Ten Commandments of Jesus. So if you want to listen to what Jesus expects, go to Pine Ridge House, listen to Dan's sermons on the Ten Commandments of Jesus, and I'm sure he did a fantastic job of helping us understand what he desires for our lives. Again, we have to embrace all of his teachings and not pick and choose. And it's imperative we do so, because according to Jesus in 49.50, to reject Him is to reject God. They're one and the same. So we can't say we love God without loving Jesus and vice versa. Now, of course, the Jews didn't believe this. That's why He's crying out to them, do this. Because they believed they loved God, but they were rejecting Christ. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. If you reject me, you reject the Father. No wonder when they found out in Acts that they rejected Jesus, they actually found like they were pierced to the heart. <laughs> Because at that moment, they realized they rejected God at the same time. And they killed him thinking they were standing up for God. So you can see why they were just absolutely distraught when they heard Peter's message and believed that, they, that the Messiah was from, was from the Father. And again, I think it's important because our evangelism needs to include this in our culture when people make God whoever they want and whatever they want. God's the universe. God's you. Uh, you're just part of God. Um, God is... I mean, I've heard so many different things about what God is or who God is. According to Jesus, he would cry out in our generation, Okotoks, and say, if you want to know God, you know me. You know me, you'll know God. If you don't know me, you don't know, any, you don't know God. <laughs> That's what Jesus' message is here. Okay, let's go to the lessons. And uh, you could probably word these in different ways, but uh, here's a few of them. Lesson one, being a witness to Jesus' miracles does not guarantee that one will believe in him. That's verse 37. Though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. There are many ministries in our Christian circles today that believe that are miracle-focused. I mean, I'm sure, especially like people who have been in Christianity for a long time, have experienced like these sort of like faith, faith healing movements and all these things that promote miracles, and they, that's the focus of the ministry. Um, even if those the ministries were legitimate, it doesn't guarantee that one will place their faith in him. The Jews didn't. 
Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. I was in my gym um, about five years ago with a guy that goes down to Redding, California, because there's this like uh, Bethel Chapel down there does like these uh, like these crazy supernatural nights, and their their slogan is "As it is on earth, isn't or as it is in heaven is on earth." No, it's the other way around, isn't it? As on earth as it is in heaven. So they believe that the way it functions in heaven is going to be a duplicate replica here on earth. And so they expect that full healings, full miracles, and so on. So my friend comes back and says, you won't believe what I saw. I've got pictures of myself and of all the things I saw. And my question to them was this. I said, uh, I, even if I believe everything you're saying is true, I said, how many people that night gave themselves to the Lord? And he looked at me with like deer in the headlights. No answer. And then I asked him another question. Out of curiosity, after that night, um, did anybody in the leadership single out people for discipleship from there on after? Deer in the headlights. Right? They're not thinking about that. All he wants me to do, he wanted me to be so impressed with the miracles, but when I asked him, did anyone convert and were you going to disciple them after? doesn't even have a response. Because the focus of the ministry isn't that. And I mean, that's just, that's just a tragedy because the miracles mean nothing in themselves. I mean, you can't guarantee someone will place their faith in them just because you see something. Lesson number two. Now to the main thrust of the sermon. God never hardens a person's heart that is not already hardened towards them. Okay? There's no arbitrary choosing by God before the foundations of the world. Believer, non-believer, I don't like you, I love you for his good pleasure, for his glory. There's no arbitrary, predetermining choosing of people uh, to be saved or not saved. He only gets involved when people are already hardened towards him. And in other words, he never gets involved against the will of a person. He only confirms their choices. He confirms their choices. I did it in Isaiah's time, confirmed their choices. He did it in John's or in uh, Jesus' time. He confirmed their choices. Pharaoh confirmed their choices. Israel in the desert confirmed their choices. But the whole time that he does that, he's crying out, "Come back! Come back! Come back! Come back!" And these people say, "No! No! No!" And God says, "Fine. Okay, I'll get involved. I'm doing this to you now." Lesson three: God's involvement in hardening someone's heart is never arbitrary, random, but purposeful. Again. Similar lesson. Pharaoh was hardened to get Israel free. Jews were hardened to get Jesus to the cross. To fulfill scripture. It always had a purpose. And if you harden someone's heart today, I don't know what his purpose would be. Uh, obviously, it would be towards some kind of redemptive nature. But I can't answer to God. I can't, well, first of all, I wouldn't even necessarily know when God did it. But secondly, uh, if he did, I, that's between him and that person. I, I can't. I mean, I don't have that omniscience to know when he does and doesn't. Lesson four. When God hardens someone's heart in unbelief, it's not meant to be a turtle in scope. Big one for me this week. My theology changed after this lesson. I hope it does for you if you came to that degree as well. Again, you can't argue with Acts chapter two. The same people, the key is this. He performed many signs before them. Acts chapter 2, though he performed the many signs before them, it's the same group of people. They knew, they saw, and they're pierced to the heart. The same people that were fully in unbelief. And they say, what should we do? And he says, repent. You can do this. Your choice. Again, uh, to me, a massive lesson. And finally, 
To be a follower of Jesus, one must embrace all of his teaching. That's verses 44 through 50. That means we embrace his, the, his, his uh, teachings on morality, how we treat one another, and his divinity, his claims about being God, and so on and so forth. Again, we could say a lot about that. Uh, uh, Dan does a 10-part series on this. So if you want to get an application of Lesson 5, I encourage you to listen to his sermon.